Welcome to the Saints and Scholars podcast. We're glad you're with us today. We are joined by Crawford Gribben, who's going to be talking to us about one of those strange, often misunderstood theologians that spent uh, many years in ministry here on the island of Ireland and certainly left a legacy in the form of the Brethren Church. We'll be talking about John Nelson Darby. I hope you enjoy the episode and find it helpful. First of all, um, because everybody who's listening, maybe some have more of an understanding of who he is than others, just tell us first of all, who is John Nelson Darby? Well, he's dead now, so I should probably put that in the past tense, but uh, John Nelson Darby was um, born in the 1800s, died in 1882, um, came from quite wealthy background. Uh, initially pursued a career in the Church of Ireland, but quickly became disenchanted by what he saw of church-state relations, particularly um, in the 1820s. And um, so came out of the Church of Ireland, began to network with a few other people, from mainly from Anglican, but some some from congregational backgrounds, one from, one, one from a Catholic background, to think about what, what the church is, and what and, and therefore how Christians should meet for worship in what he recognized as the ruin of the church. And as he looked as he looked around, I think in something of despair at the available denominational options, he recognized that they all fell short of some aspect of, of New Testament truth, and therefore argued that, that Christians should come out from these denominations, um, not necessarily because they taught error but because they were organized in a way that restricted the liberty of the spirit in directing God's people to worship. Uh, and so um, he, uh, he and these other um, small groups of Christians began to form together Bible study meetings, which eventually began to break bread with each other and eventually became known by outsiders as uh, the Plymouth Brethren, because one of their largest congregations um, was going to be based in 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 Plymouth later on. So Dar- Darby's often known as the originator of the Brethren movement. He's often um, identified as the the founder of dispensationalism, which is a view uh, is a, is a is a big dispensationalism is a big, uh, well rounded view of looking at at the Bible. But it's mostly known today for its view of the end times. Um, so the idea of a, of a secret rapture followed by tribulation followed by the millennium. Um, that's that's often attributed in its origins to Darby and his study of the Bible. You've started there to talk about uh, uh, a legacy that he left. Well, what what legacy has he left Christianity? Then you started talking about a dispensational theology, but in what what ways do we see that working its way out in Christianity? Well, I think I mean I think that his his view of the end times is really his most influential uh, legacy, isn't it? Because it has become normative to evangelicals really around the world. So interestingly, one of the most recent historians who's written about this is a Canadian man called Donald Aitkinson, not from an evangelical background, writes as a, a religious historian, a, rather an historian of religion, but not, not making any kind of Christian confession as far as I know himself. Uh, lovely guy, good scholar, really good scholar. Uh, but he reckons that he, he has described Darby as the fourth, fourth most important Protestant theologian ever. 
after Luther, Calvin, and Wesley, he says it's a toss-up between um, the founder of the Mormons, <laughs> Joseph Smith, uh, and J.N. Darby. And you know, if if we recognise that the Mormons are not actually a Christian denomination, then I think that you know Darby is the obvious fourth most influential Protestant theologian ever. Uh, I think that's true. I think that's true, largely because his view of the end times has really come to, to, to become normative for millions, hundreds of millions of evangelicals around the world. Rightly or wrongly, that seems to be the case. I think Darby himself would have been dismayed by that. Um, he complains in his letters that certain of his ideas are taken out of context and pressed into illogical conclusions. And that's definitely the case with his view of the end times. His view of the end times is, you know, is, is not quite uh, as simple as the view set out, for example, in the Schofield Reference Bible, which is how most his ideas have, have most circulated. But Schofield's ideas are not the same as Darby's ideas in some very important ways. Um, and also Schofield was appropriating some of Darby's ideas as a clergyman of a denomination, Schofield was a congregational minister. Um, and, and, and Darby would have been, I think, appalled to, to see that um, people who refused to leave the denominations to meet as brethren did, nevertheless wanted to steal some of the brethren ideas and, and, and use them for their own purposes, whatever those purposes would be. You know, uh, Ireland uh, has a number of brethren assemblies all across the the island as well. And in what way has Darby uh, influenced w- w- the the brethren church as we would know it on that the island today? Or in what way has the brethren church maybe even reacted against some of those original principles of Darby? Well, that's a great question. And again, uh, there are different kinds of Brethren Assemblies. Of course, they exist in different kinds of networks now. Um, the, the, the fellowships who best preserve Darby's ideas are the exclusive fellowships, not the ones necessarily that are linked to um, the group in Newton Abbey that go about with small headscarves, because I think they've got a different set of, of influences, although Darby is definitely among them. Um, but the but the smaller groups like Kellyite brethren and, and other groups like that um, who who take Darby's ideas very seriously and read them on on their own terms I think um, the, the the group that most Baptist folks would be would would understand as brethren would be some form of open brethren gospel hall brethren or you know however you might want to describe them it's kind of hard to to generalize about that community um, because it's a community that's changing quite a lot I think. Um, it understands itself to be quite theologically conservative. And I think by and large it is. Um, they dress in a very conservative way. Uh, they drive conservative cars. You know, it, it's a community that sees itself in, in, in very conservative terms. And yet, I think in some very important ways, they are actually theologically quite radical because they have moved away in a radical way from some of the ideas that Darby and the first century of Brethren would have thought to be absolutely essential. And I'm speaking there, for example, about what we might in other contexts call Calvinism. So Darby is not often thought of, the, the exclusive brethren generally are not often thought of as being Calvinistic, but the, the, with the exception of their view on the atonement, I think it's very hard to describe them in any other way. Um, and certainly Darby's view 
of the atonement um, is more or less the same as that of W.G.T. Shedd, the great Reformed Presbyterian pastor in America, and also the same as that of Andrew Fuller, the great English particular Baptist. So if, you know, if Fuller and Shedd can get past as being described as Calvinist, I'm not sure why Darby can't, because Darby's view of the will, for example, is much, much more Calvinistic in inverted commas than Andrew Fuller's view of the will is. So if you're gonna, if you're gonna set beside Andrew Fuller, the great particular Baptist theologian that Spurgeon so admired, and J.N. Darby, you'd have to say that Darby's actually more Calvinistic uh, than Andrew Fuller. But anyway, your question is about how those ideas have come through. Well, most gospel halls have more or less abandoned those ideas. Some have set themselves against them um, um, very emphatically in some in some instances. Um, they have, they, 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 the Open Brethren Assemblies might pay respect to Darby, but they tend to have a much narrower view of what to be interested in. So if you read magazines, the magazines or, or you know, big, big conference addresses that are advertised, they, they tend to focus on questions of church order or questions of prophecy or questions of the typological reading of Old Testament feasts. That's a kind of a stereotype, but those three things tend to be the thing. So if, if, you're, if you're going to special meetings, either be in Leviticus 23, Christ in the, in, in, in the types there, or it'll be some question of church order or some question of prophecy, often with a prophecy chart. And, you know, that's those, don't get me wrong, those are all issues that Darby's interested in passionately. Um, but he's interested, Dar Darby's a much more comprehensive writer. He writes about questions of um, Christian experience um, in terms of Romans 7 and Romans 8. He writes about a view of the sealing of the spirit that follows upon conversion doesn't identify that with regeneration. He sees it as coming sometime after that. And um, he seems to be getting his view there from certain English Puritan theologians, like Thomas Goodwin, who argue a similar kind of case. Uh, and in fact, if you look at Martin Lloyd-Jones's book, um, Joy Unspeakable, his book about the ministry of the Holy Spirit, he actually, he actually has a section there where he talks about Darby's view of the Spirit as being more or less the same as his own that there is a post-conversion experience of the Spirit. So, you know, all of that's built in there. So, so Darby has this very nuanced view of the Christian life. Um, uh, he, 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 you know, there's, there's, there's so many things you could say about Mandra. You know, he's, he's hardly discussed, hardly read anymore. Uh, and, and yet he is a fulsome, very comprehensive Christian writer who writes about all the major theological themes, um, often in ways that, that are surprising. Um, and uh, a lifelong defender of infant baptism, for example, uh, he thought that he thought it was terrible that that Baptists had infiltrated the, the Brethren movement and had turned so many open Brethren assemblies into functionally Baptist societies that would only admit to communion those who had been baptized as believers. Um, you know, and, and and so it goes on. Someone who's worth reading. Someone who's that worth reading. little reference you gave there to uh, Lloyd Jones and Darby, just in terms of the way I grew up and the types of books I read you know you, you would have always seen those two men as complete you know polar opposites in terms of the, our stereotype theological camps we would have put them in and yet you've just pointed out a, an influence there in terms of a uh, few of the work of the Holy Spirit if we finish up maybe by just talking we, we talked about the brethren but if we, we come back then and talk about Irish evangelicalism generally um, though we mightn't be aware of it, in what way do you think John Nelson Darby uh, 
has influenced, you know, for good or maybe caused a reaction against uh, within Irish evangelicalism? How do we see that impact there? It's a good, it's a good question. I suppose um, one of the things that makes it maybe a wee bit hard to identify the answer to that question is to know how to trace ideas through time. So just because something happens now that looks a bit similar to what he was doing then doesn't mean it happened necessarily as a consequence. But yeah, I think there are some consequences. Well, to, to, to focus on the positives, when Darby and the Brethren began to preach about the gospel, they preached it in a way that was completely different to anything that was available at the time, as far as I can see. So when Darby and the early brethren preached about the gospel, they preached about a work that was done rather than a work that, that the listeners to the gospel had to do. So done is the work that saves is a kind of you know, famous opening line of one of those, one of those hymns. Um, the, 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 the Baptist movement in, in particular in the early 19th century was, was kind of legal. It was coming out of the, the hyper-Calvinist domination of the 18th century. And you've got people like Andrew Fuller then that really kind of mix that up and, and, and bring it a little bit more closely focused on scripture. And that is the introduction of an evangelical impulse that becomes very important. Um, but the, the Brennan see that, they're very happy to see that. Um, but then in 1859, as I said, it's a missionary of the Baptist Irish Society who's doing door-to-door -door work around Connor, Kells Connor, you know, who eventually begins to collect that little, little book, that, that little group of early believers who, who form together and who, who begin to pray. And then, of course, what we know is the 1859 revival kicks off. But it's a lovely connection between a, a Baptist lady missionary doing door-to-door -door work and a set of evangelical ideas or under, an understanding of the gospel that I think in the 1850s is pretty much exclusive, to use a bad word, of the brethren. Um, so that, for example, I mean, that, that, that maybe sounds strange. Don't all evangelicals preach the gospel the same way? Well, no, the answer is they don't. They don't. But in 1859, the brethren suddenly found themselves, after, you know, for, after several decades of being this really marginal minority movement in 1859 they suddenly discover that the way they preach the gospel is the way that all of these revivalists are beginning to preach the gospel too immediate assurance you can know now if you're a christian you know you don't need to you don't need to pray for faith you don't need to go through torturous self-examination if you keep looking to yourself you're never going to get assurance of faith you keep your eye fixed in jesus christ you keep your eye fixed on the cross and what he has done for you, not what you're going to do for him. And that, you know, for, for all that seems kind of normal to us, that was kind of revolutionary. And that's what that's what really drove the revival preaching. And actually, if you look at the anti-revival literature produced mainly by Presbyterians, that's what they're terrified of. They don't believe that anyone can, can trust Jesus Christ and instantly know that, that he has saved them. You know, they think it's, that's too simple. It needs to be more complicated than this. And so the brethren then suddenly discover that all of these people are preaching the gospel as they understand it, and they're just delighted by this. Uh, and I suppose that's that's probably the most important thing. Um, R.L. Dabney, the great Southern American Presbyterian theologian, in one of his books has a chapter on the literature of the Plymouth Brethren. 
And that's one of the things he notices. He notices that they have a different way of presenting the gospel than the Presbyterians do. And his comment is kind of funny because he says that actually the brethren are much closer to Calvin than the Presbyterians are. So make of that what you will. So I think I think that's very important in a positive way. I think perhaps in uh, maybe a less positive way, some of Darby's emphases on um, the condition of the church have have maybe been taken in a different context under to, to mean that churches don't matter. And of course, one of the things that we see a lot of in Northern Ireland is the kind of church butterfly, a person who floats from here to here to here to here, belonging nowhere yet believing that they belong everywhere. Uh, and of course, believing that they can simply walk into a congregation and take bread and wine as if they're a member in good standing. Now, this um, sadly is a normal aspect of evangelicalism now. It certainly wasn't until extremely recently. And through the 19th century, even into the 20th century, Brethren, Baptists, Presbyterians, everyone would have would have expected it as a normal part of your courtesy as a visiting Christian, never mind your responsibility as a believer, to be a, to be identified with a particular congregation, fellowship, assembly, and to be accountable to its leadership. And some of Darby's ideas have been read to negate that and, and to create this kind of free-flowing butterfly community that, that floats around, responsible to no one. Again, that would have been an anathema to Derby. I should emphasise that. But I think that that kind of activity, that weakening of church responsibility, if you like, is an aspect of um, some of his ideas that, just as he complained, had been taken out of context, pressed to illogical conclusions. Um, and so, you know, what do evangelicals believe about the church? Well, no one, no one knows. No one knows what evangelicals believe about the church, uh, and and in a way that is the that is the tragedy um, of our situation, isn't it? Um, that you have all these different views of the church, and hardly anyone is able to parse them out or explain them. Well, Crawford, we've taken up a lot of your time, but I really do appreciate just the thoughtfulness of the answers and the ability that you have to just help us see that. Yeah. most ideas are, are not single ideas that influence us, but it's a melding pot of lots and lots of different influences. And this has been this has been really, really helpful. And certainly it's got me thinking I'm going to have to go for a big walk now just to let it all process a little bit more. But thank you very much for your time. I want to say a big thank you to Crawford Gribben for joining us and sharing uh, with us today. Also, thank you to you for listening. I hope you are finding the podcast helpful if you are please share like and follow to keep up to date with the podcast episodes as they come 